chapter of Romans, and uh, we will be um, starting in verse 31. We are uh, in our last installment of our series, Therefore, which has been a study of the eighth chapter of Romans. And uh, so, we're going to be reading uh, verse 31 to the end of the chapter, and this is this is the crescendo. This is it's, this is the peak, uh, really, of the biblical message of the gospel. So, hear the word of God. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sort? As it is written, for your sake, We are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to slaughter. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is your inspired, revealed revelation to us. And Lord, when we come to this book, Lord, we don't just come to uh, human thoughts or opinions. We come to your inspired word, which was given and written through men, that we might know what it means to know you and to be saved. And so, Lord, this morning, use your word to teach us and to transform us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Um, so there, we're in this Therefore series. And uh, our last installment. And this, this series has been Paul concluding on, okay, here's the gospel. You've received it. You've become a Christian. You're following Jesus. What does that really mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be in Christ? And so Paul, in this chapter, begins to just pile on audacious truth, audacious truth after another. And it just begins to build and build and build and build, like almost like Handel's Messiah, where it just eventually just breaks out into the hallelujah chorus. I won't sing it. Sorry. I almost did. That's bad. Uh, Yeah. And, and it breaks out, and that's where we get to this point. But up to this point, he has said that we've been, if you're in Christ, you are justified. Just as if you have never sinned. You are 
uh, there is no condemnation. All the penalty and judgment and shame and guilt that was upon you in your sin and brokenness is gone because of what Jesus did by going to the cross for you. But also, not only that, but that the Holy Spirit would come and indwell us and connect us to that justification and that we would be set free from the bondage of sin and death. And then in that, we are now set free to walk not in our selfishness and our uh, autonomy and self-sufficiency in the flesh, but that we would walk in the Spirit and trust and reliance upon God. And not only that, but we are adopted as His children. We are adopted into the family of God. And because of that, we are heirs of Christ, fellow heirs with Jesus. And so that everything that Jesus has, everything that Jesus is, and everything is true about Jesus is true about us. And in that, though, we will face suffering. Because in that, we will share in his sufferings. And that's the real thing. It gets, it gets real very fast in this chapter. And he talks about how creation is groaning with us. And we are groaning and suffering as if we were in childbirth. However, the Spirit is there to give us help and hope and purpose in our suffering. And he's built all of this. And then he asks a question, because he comes to a point, and he, he wants this not just to be some intellectual, theological ideas, which is important. He wants this to go into our hearts and transform who we are as people. And he asks a question, and he says, what shall we say to these things? All this, he has piled all this on and said all these amazing truths about how God, and and we are in Christ, God is there with us and and has blessed us in in so many lavish ways. And he says, what what do we say to that? What should a response be? What does this mean for us? Well, Paul here, in a series of rhetorical questions, declares three things. First of all, because of the gospel, God is astoundingly for us, irrevocably loves us, and has resoundingly proven that to us. He has is astoundingly for us, irrevocably loves us, and resoundingly has proven that to us. So let's look at those. First of all, God is astoundingly for us. There's something deep in each one of us, I think. A deep desire for every human being to want other people to be for you. You ever, you ever thought that? Like, I want people to be... I want people to be on my team. I want people to cheer me on. I want people to be on my side. You know, and if you can remember, back, like, rewind back into high school and middle school, you really felt it. Remember those days when you would walk into the cafeteria and your scanners went on? If you watch teenagers, they still do this today. The scanners go on, and they're scanning the room. And they're scanning. You'll watch them. They'll stand there and they'll scan. And what are they looking for? The one person in the room that says, I'm your friend. I'm for you. And they go right to them and they huddle together, right? That is high school and middle school in a in nutshell. But it, we, it happens as adults too. We do it. You go to a party, what do you do? You scan for somebody you know. This is the brilliance of Facebook. Think about it. You know, you put out stuff out there. And what are you saying? Like me, like me. I want you to like me. You know, we get our little likes and our little friendly emojis, you know. 
and you know, and, and so it, it's powerful. And it, it, it's, it's, it's called brain hacking now, and the Facebook is using that desire within us to addict us so that we look at it more and that we look at more ads and they get more money. And, but it's brilliant, isn't it? But it's powerful in our relationships. It really can shape and, and change how we relate to one another and other people. It can be really powerful in marriage. I can remember when Man and I were recently married. We went to, uh, um, not Dave Ramsey, I can't remember the name of the guy, but it's a Weekend to Remember marriage conference. And at one point in the conference, they had everybody, all the couples kind of sit and face each other and say these words. You, you are not my enemy. We are on the same team. You know, and it sounds like pretty obvious, right? But in a marriage, if, if, if that belief that the other person is not for you begins to break down, the, the marriage starts to struggle. And then you start trying to fight for your own, and, you start tr- and then it becomes a lot of mistrust, and, and then it becomes a big problem. And so my wife and I, on occasion, when we've been fighting, have had to stop and say, you're not my enemy. We're married. We love each other. Remember? Remember that? We're not enemies. We're, we're, we have the same goals in mind. And so we have this um, powerful need within us for people to be for us. And so Paul asks, this, 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 he begins his series of rhetorical questions, and he asks us, if God is for us, who could be against us. God is for you. Who could be against us? Now, every time I read that, I think a lot of people could be against you. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I can think of at least a few people that don't like me and aren't for me, you know, that might even be considered against me. Um, but he, So he's not saying that. I mean, Paul is not denying that people would be against us. That's going to happen. There will be, there's going to be people, there's going to be things in this world that are going to come against you. They probably already are. You feel it. It's a bummer. They don't like your mess. They, don't, they stopped liking your posts because you offended them or something. Jesus made it clear as well. In John chapter 15, he says this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So just a little side note here, guys. Listen, you are not, if you're a Christian, you're, if you are associated with Jesus, you are not going to be liked. There's going to be a segment of the population, a large segment of the population perhaps, that are not going to like you. Stop trying to be liked. Give it up. Love people. Invite them to Jesus. They're not going to like you. Stop worrying about that. I mean, I think most people don't share their faith and don't invite people to to church and to to the gospel because they want to be liked. Let me confess, that's me. You know, I don't want to be seen as some kind of religious fanatic or an idiot or something like that, you know. But the reality is, if you know Jesus, they're not going to like you anyway. He's told you that's going to happen. Okay. Done with the little side note there. 
But Paul, what Paul's doing here, he's not trying to deny that people are, are, are not going to come against us or whatever. What he's saying here, he's making a comparison. He's saying that if God is for you, who cares if people don't like you? It, it, there's just no comparison. If God is absolutely for you, there is no comparison if other people aren't. What are they going to do? It, it, it's, your team is stacked. You, you have a, your deck is stacked. Reminds me of the movie that Lion King. Remember that? I saw it recently. And little Simba and, is with that little other little cub. And they've gone to the, uh, the, the, the elephant graveyard. Remember this? And they're there and hyenas sort encircle them. And they're about to be killed by these hyenas. And little Simba tries to roar. He's like, ow! You know? And the hyenas just laugh or whatever. And then uh, uh, little Simba roars again. But instead of this little roar, it's rah, it's a really big roar because his father, is it Mufasa, has come and is there to rescue. It's a really good picture. You know, if, if, if God is for us, who is against us? Who could be against us? It reminds me when I was growing up, uh, I've shared this story before, but um, for some reason, um, there was this old, older uh, teenager befriended me. And his name was very adequately, his nickname was adequately called Bull, okay? He was very much, could be described as Bull. Bull was six plus feet, you know, a couple hundred pounds, and he was in high school, and he befriended little Russell. And let me tell you, when Bull was for me, all of a sudden, nobody messed with me. It was awesome, you know? I actually became, I took advantage of that a little too much, probably, you know? Became a punk sometimes when I shouldn't, because they knew that if they, they must mess with Russell, Bull was going to come and pounce on them, you know? But if, and here's the thing. If God is for you, who can be against you? But the, the problem with this is that we, we struggle to believe that. Because... We read this text and we say, if God is for us. But you've got to understand, in the, in, the, in the Greek language here, there's different ways to say if. Did you know that? They have one, there's one way to saying if that would assume that the, that the answer's not clear. So, you know, if it could happen, maybe, maybe not. But no, the, the word if here is assuming that the answer is affirmative. So he's saying, God is indeed for us. It's not a, it's not a question. So Baptist pastor, pastor up in Georgia said this. He said, your family may have turned their backs on you. Your child may have disappointed you. Your job may have disappeared into thin air. Um, of layoffs and cutbacks, but the maker of mountains is for you. The one who laid the floor of the oceans is for you. The one who scattered the more than 100 billion stars over 100 billion galaxies, and what science, scientists say is the length of more than 3 million light years with a playful toss of a hand is for you. And if God is for us, who could be against us? So here's the thing. God is astoundingly for you. He's for you. He's there. He's cheering you on. He's on your team. That is good news. But it gets better. 
Because not only is God standing for us, He is, God irrevocably loves us. And so he asks another rhetorical question. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And, and in verses 38 and 39, he, this is the, the peak of the crescendo, he begins to list things that would come against us. In fact, do come against us. Let's look at some of those. He says, death or life. Okay? And here's the thing. Death can never sever our relationship with Christ. Even if someone was to kill you, that cannot separate you from life. As a matter of fact, as Paul talks about, it might be to your benefit, because you get to go and be right in his presence, to live as Christ, to die as gain. But also life. Nothing that life throws at us can separate us from Christ. Nothing that life can give us can separate us. And he goes on, he lists angels and principalities. This most likely refers to both good and evil angels, spiritual beings. And the point is, is that nothing, whatever in the spiritual realm, no cosmic power, whether benevolent or malevolent, can separate us from God. And then he goes, things present thing, or things to come. So neither your present circumstances nor any future circumstances have the power to to take away God's love from you. And then he uses the word powers. And this this is the only item in the list that appears alone, but it refers to either the, the miraculous or supernatural phenomena, perhaps that may come from Satan himself. Okay? It's also another reference to demons. So there's nothing in the physical world, the emotional world, in the circumstances of your life, in the spiritual realms, in life or in death, there is nothing, nothing that can separate you. And then he goes and says, height or depth. And this, this pair encompasses anything and everything above and below. That is, everything, nothing above the heavens or beneath the earth or anything can in between sever us from Christ. So he, he's, this list, he is using this list to encompass anything and everything you could possibly imagine that could separate you from Christ. But here's another question, though. Because this is where we might say, well, what if God himself, what if God himself would separate me from his love? That's a good question, isn't it? You see, see on this question in, Uh, verse 33 who shall bring charge against God's elect it's God who justifies so in other words what would be the grounds for God separating you from his love or casting you aside what would be the grounds for that our sin right it would be, that would be the one thing, if anything, would be the fact that we continue to sin. And I know we all feel like that sometimes. I don't know if you ever feel like God is just disappointed in you. Or God is just fed up with you. And, and, and God just done. But here's the thing. It's God who justifies. It's God who has done the work to justify us. So Paul's argument is that Christ died for those very sins. See in verse 33 and 34, he says, it was to condemn. 
Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and is at the right hand of God interceding for you. So in other words, if, if you sin, which you're probably going to, Jesus has paid the penalty for that on the cross. And not only that, he is right there next to God saying, I have done it. I've paid for it. He's done. There, it is a not guilty verdict. You cannot cast him aside. And so, we can be confident that God will never cast us aside because of what he has done in Jesus God has taken the most elaborate, sacrificial, personally painful, and costly steps possible to embrace us in his love. And so Paul's argument is that rather than being against us, God is for us. And then rather than taking from us, he gives us all things. And rather than condemning us, he justifies. So in other words, God's love for you is irrevocable. It can never, ever be taken away. So he's astoundingly for us, and he irrevocably loves us, and he's also resoundingly proven it to us. Resoundingly proven it to us. Okay, so we might say, okay, that sounds great, but how do we know this is true? How do we know it's true? How do I know it's true of me? How do you know it's true of you? Okay, here's the answer. God has proven it to you. God has proven his love to you. Look at, look at notice, notice in verse 32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So he's, this is a logical argument here. This is an argument from the greater principle to a lesser principle. In other words, okay, okay, he's saying, well, first of all, who, who gave Jesus up for, to die in the first place? Um, Puritan writer put it this way. You got that for me? Octavius Winslow. I love his name. Who delivered Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. So God, the argument here, if God was willing to give his son over to suffering and torture and death and ultimately separation from him, where his son would cry out, my my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If God would do that, why wouldn't he willingly do anything else for us? So it's going from the harder principle to the simpler one. If God was willing to offer up his own son, the second person of the Trinity, be tortured and killed on our behalf, how much easier would it be for him to give us all things? John Piper put it this way. The reason God's sparing not his own son is the greater thing is that God loved his son infinitely. His son did not deserve to be killed. His son was worthy of worship by every creature, not spitting and whipping and scorn and torture. To hand over his beloved son was the incomparably great thing. The reason for this is the immensity of God's love for his son. 
This was what made it so unlikely that God would hand him over. Yet God did it. And, and in doing, he showed that he most certainly would do all other things, all of which would be easy by comparison to give all things to the, for, to the people for whom he gave his son. You know, somebody gave you a priceless diamond. It would, wouldn't, you wouldn't think twice that they would give you the box. So God, the logic here is that God, who gave his son, why, if he gave his son to die, why would he give us all things? And the, and the answer to that is, is, the logic is, of course he would. He absolutely would. Charles Cranfield put it this way, since God has done the unspeakably great and costly thing, we may be confident that he will do what was by comparison far less. And so the Paul's assertion here is to drive home the unshakable assurance that God is astoundingly for us and irrevocably knows us, loves us. He's proven it to us with the greatest proof possible. Now, there's a voice, I think. Well, this passage, I think, addresses a couple of things. First, you know, addresses our guilt. There's no condemnation. We've been justified. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more. There's nothing we can do to make God love us less. We are perfect in his sight. Everything that is true about Jesus is true of us. Our guilt is washed away. But here's the problem. Guilt is a courtroom issue, isn't it? Guilt is, is decided in a courtroom. And it's possible to be found not guilty, yet still face horrible shame. Shame is a community thing. What is shame? Shame says, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy for anybody to be for me I'm not good enough and so I think there's a voice in each and every one of us that, 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 we, that we listen to all the time it's a voice that repeats over and over and over again I think that voice influences our relationships drives out our decisions it's a voice we wake up to Okay? It's the voice that says we're not good enough, we're not attractive enough, not spiritual enough, not successful enough, or whatever. And y'all know what I'm talking about. It's the voice that says if people really knew me, if they really knew the depths of my soul, they would certainly reject me, and God included. That, my friends, is the voice of shame. That, that voice of shame affects our relationships. That voice of shame drives our decisions. It causes us to react to things, and we don't even know why we're reacting to them. So let me ask you this. What is that voice for you? Now, some of you know right away. You, you're so used to thinking about that. that You're so accustomed to hearing it. Now, some of us hide that voice from ourselves sometimes, and it, or it's... Just be, we just kind of mark it, we just kind of shake it off as insecurity or this, that, or the other. But every one of us has that voice. And so I want you all to do something. I want you to identify 
What is that voice saying to you? What does that voice speak to you? What does that voice say to you over and over and over again? What does that voice say to you that causes you to react in fear, to hide, to cover up, to, to, to over-excel, to exceed, to try to make people like you or to whatever? What is that voice saying to you? I want you to identify that. I think you should write it down. Write it down on a piece of paper, put it in your iPhone or pad or whatever. Write that down. Okay? But I, and I want you to recognize, I want you to label that as a lie. It is a lie. It is a lie that we, we hear over and over and over again. And I, I don't know whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. That voice is there. And it started early, didn't it? Maybe it was a circumstance. Maybe it was the fact you were a little bit abandoned by your parents. Maybe it was a traumatic event. Maybe it was some abuse. Maybe it was the fact you just couldn't keep up or you weren't cool enough, smart enough, or whatever. That voice has been there and it's been reverberating. So I want you all to write that down. And here's what I want you all to do. Okay, find somebody that you can feel safe enough to share that with. And somebody also who can begin to help you think that through and begin to apply the truths of this passage to that lie. Because this, this passage doesn't just speak to our, to our guilt before God and others. It does. It is God who justifies. It also addresses that shame. Why? Think about it. This, this passage says, God is proud to call you his son or daughter. His, God doesn't just theoretically love you. God really likes you. He wants to be associated with you. And those truths, that truth can dispel that lie that you're not good enough, you're unwanted, you're dirty, you're not attractive enough, you're not this enough, whatever. And that, this can give you the, 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 the grounding and the power to see transformation in your life. If God is really for you. Reminds me of a story I'm going to close with. I'm stealing this from a conference that was called Sonship several years ago. And there was a lady who told of a story when she was a little girl, really wanted to, to uh, please her family and her dad, particularly her dad. And um, her mom was taking, uh, this is before dryers, I guess, was taking the wet clothes, the laundry, and hanging it on clotheslines. Well, she wanted to help out. And so she took one of her dad's white shirts, and she couldn't reach the clothesline, so she draped it over this old barrel. Well, that old barrel was rusty, and it stained that shirt horribly. And her dad was so upset and angry, and she remembers that she, even as an adult, carried with her the shame of that, that she had failed and had displeased her father. And then 
she came to hear these truths. And these truths spoke to her and it said, God is for you. And, and God is so for you. The, that, if that was replayed and God was her father in that moment, God the Father would have taken that shirt and said, look what my little girl did. And he would have worn that shirt with the rust stain and everything all over it. Because that was his little girl's shirt that he had received from her. That is the message here. That God is for you. God loves you. He wants to be with you. He's on your team. He is cheering you on. He is there with you. God is for you. And because of that, there is nothing in this world that can separate you from Him. That is the beauty of this passage here. And it can really radically shape who we are. Now, if you're not a believer, that, I know that shame is there. There's guilt and shame. And here's the good news of the gospel. is that Jesus died to pay for your shame, to cleanse away your shame, and to pay for your guilt. And now, if you would just receive the free gift, what he has done for you, if you would just believe it and trust it, take it, it's yours. And he would be for you forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you 